Well, this morning, we are going to John chapter 21. We're going to be doing the final half of John chapter 21, which will be the conclusion of John's gospel. It is our 41st week looking at John's gospel, so we've spent basically all of 2021 doing it. And uh, I'm so grateful for your effort of showing up and thinking and listening, and I know in all of our uh, small groups discussing these passages and having put many of you, I know, so many extra time in doing your own study and reading in advance each week, and it really is quite an accomplishment to have been able to spend an entire year together in a book so important as John's Gospel. Uh, It was about this time last year that I really felt, and we discussed as a board, um, changing plans. We were going to be in the Old Testament, but jumping in and doing a year in John's gospel. And all of us were sensing that there was some sort of a unique call God had for us during this season uh, to focus our attention on Christ, to focus our attention on what it is to follow him, to believe in him, to know him more deeply. And in so many ways, I feel like this study together through John has done that. I know it's done it for me personally, and as so many of you have expressed to me, it's been really a life-changing experience for you as well. I'm thankful, thankful that we've done it. Uh, next week, we will be moving on to a new series. So I've given you a little bit of a roadmap before, but we're going to carve out the month of November to do a series uh, looking specifically at Bent Oak Church. I've been calling it the Why is Bent Oak Church a Little Bit Weird series. Uh, it'll be slightly different. Most of the time, you're used to me coming up here, opening a book of the Bible, preaching through a passage. In some ways, this November series will be talks. I mean, I think I'll be relying on scripture and they will be scriptural, but I want to spend a little time talking about who we are as a congregation. So we'll probably be looking at things like what is it we are and we do together as a church? Um, what is it that we do when we come together on Sunday mornings like this? Why do we worship the way we do? Why do we approach scripture the way we do? How, how is it we should, specifically as Bento Church, uh, how should we seek to build relationships with with one another? What is the community that exists within a church? And how is it that Bento Church is contributing to this bigger mission, the church's mission that Christ has called us to? So I'm really excited about that. For some that are new, I think it'll be helpful just to hear where we've come from and why we are the way we are. And for all of us, it's a reminder, um, some time to carve out what is God doing here and how do we sort of bring ourselves into participation with it. So I'm excited for that. And then, of course, in December, we've got all of our speakers lined up for our Emmanuel series. We always invite people from the congregation to share. Uh, their story, a testimony through the month of December, and uh, it's one of my favorite times of the year. So believe it or not, December is very close. We are almost there. Uh, So good things to come. But today, back into John chapter 21. We're picking up right where we left off in the middle of the chapter last week. That scene was Jesus there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, stoking that charcoal fire, grilling fish, and laying out breakfast for his disciples. They joined him there on that bank, this resurrection appearance of Jesus one more time together with those closest followers, his disciples, all of them still fully taking in this experience and the realization of his resurrection, all that it meant for Jesus to be alive and to be there with him again. Their time together had also included that miraculous catch of fish in which Jesus had told them to cast their nets on the other side and they had hauled in almost more than the nets themselves could hold. And it was, of course, as we looked at it last week, a reminder to that early scene when Jesus had commissioned them to become fishers of men, that prophecy from Jeremiah, that now too he reminds them even after his resurrection that that work continues. Even in his absence, they still have his miraculous presence, the spirit, the promise of his support as they go about this work of throwing nets into the world and sharing their witness to who Christ was. So much at this point of John's gospel has really been wrapped up. You sort of sense and feel that this conclusion is coming. 
Of course, there's the great vindication of Jesus being resurrected. That long-predicted death had come, but he had overcome death through resurrection, tying up that story, that prediction. There's that scene after his resurrection in which he imparts the spirit to them by breathing on them and commissions them to go into the world. John records the moment of his own belief at the empty tomb, or Mary believing when Jesus speaks her name. The disciples who receive him into that locked room, and Thomas, though absent, who he appears to again, and he sees the wounds in his side and in his hands. But there's one piece of that story, though so much of it has been wrapped up to this point, one piece that still seems to sort of be awkwardly hanging and unresolved as you come to the end of John's gospel. That, of course, is this character Peter, and more specifically, those denials that Peter had practiced in the midst of Jesus' crucifixion. Three times, as Jesus was under arrest and being interrogated, Peter had been asked, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. Not much has been made about that moment in the midst of these resurrection stories. It's easy to imagine that perhaps Peter thought the whole thing had blown over. Maybe nobody had noticed. After all, it had been off in the margins, that courtyard outside of his arrest where Peter had encountered those questions and perhaps he had gotten away with it. Perhaps he could redo it now, live out better faith and all of that faltering of his faith was somehow behind him. Given the drama of the crucifixion hours, what did it now matter that Jesus was alive again? And so like so many of us, you can see how Peter was probably hoping it was all in the past. But with John's final story of his gospel in chapter 21, Peter becomes center again, and by the conversation he has with Jesus, those denials come back into the middle of the conversation. Peter's moment of weakness gets reversed in this conversation in which Jesus shows unbelievable grace, but also the reality of knowing what it is that looms in that background of Peter's character. So John chapter 21, we're going to be reading in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, which is the end of the book. So John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Jesus and Peter is how it's titled in my Bible. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that will betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, 
What is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the believers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John finally giving up that this language of the disciple Jesus loved so frequent throughout the gospel is the very one writing the book, John himself. Verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. With that, John concludes his gospel account. That story opens with Jesus after his disciples had shared the breakfast with him on the bank there on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus turned and began a conversation with Peter. It opens with that famous question, Peter, do you love me more than these? That's the kind of thing we're used to Jesus saying or asking to people. Are you willing to forsake all others to follow me? Are you willing to give up your wealth and your possessions to become my follower? Are you willing to face danger and persecution and die, death to self and possibly even death in the world, to follow me? So it makes sense that Jesus might say something like this to one of his disciples. Peter, are you willing to forsake all of these to follow me? Jesus, you imagine, is turning, maybe referencing the other followers around Peter. Peter, are you willing to forsake friends and companions and those that you've been out fishing with the night before? to be faithful to who I am, to following me. But in some sense, surely Jesus is also more broadly speaking about all of humanity. Are you willing to walk away from all of these relationships, all of the opinions and perspective of others, to be faithful and follow me? I don't think it's reading too much into Peter's character, if you're familiar with it or if you've been with us through John, to suggest that Peter was the kind of person to whom opinions of others seemed to matter. He seems to be quick to action and words. Peter's often one of the first to speak, the first to guess the answer when Jesus leaves a question hanging. We've already seen that the disciples are prone to following Peter because of that decisiveness. Just the story before when they were sitting around waiting, it was Peter suggested, I'm going to go fish. And the rest of the disciples got up and said, well, we might as well go too and followed him. And remember that it was Peter who when prompted, when asked, by these others standing around at Jesus' crucifixion, aren't you one of Jesus' followers, couldn't bring himself to acknowledge that truth, but gave in, folded under the expectations of their question, no, I'm not. Even when it had been a young servant girl who had asked him, Peter had submitted himself to the expected answer, to the thing that they wanted to hear, no, I'm not one of his followers. With it, three times he had denied knowing Jesus. It's not in John's gospel, but later on in the New Testament, we read that Paul and Peter had an issue between the two of them. Peter had showed up in the place of Antioch and had been eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles there as Paul had been doing. But when prominent and important figures from Jerusalem, conservative Jews from Jerusalem showed up, Peter began to withdraw from those Gentile relationships in order not to offend the prominent Jewish people who had come. Because of it, Paul confronted Peter and showed him, pointed out how his behavior was inconsistent with the gospel. But it hints at this characteristic of Peter 
to do what other people expect, to do the thing that is expected of him, that fits into the expectations of others, that secures the approval of other people around him. Whether it's a young slave girl who says, you're not one of Jesus's followers, are you? Or a prominent Jewish figure who comes and expects Peter not to be fellowshipping with Gentiles. Or Jesus himself, who throws out a question and Peter sees in it an opportunity to impress him. Peter seems to be quick to act, quick to speak to whatever it is that is expected of him that will be approved by the person he's in front of. Now, the truth is, many of us relate with it. And so many people, having read Peter's story for so long, have found themselves resonating with this character of Peter. There's a reason that even though this is John's gospel, Peter is so prominently placed. And even in the other gospels, finds himself to be one of the most prominent stories across Jesus' story. Peter is like us. And when we read his story, so many of us find ourselves like him. Quick to act quick to wonder what other people are thinking, quick to try to impress, quick to try to make sure we earn their approval or fit into the way that they've framed the conversation or expectations, always trying to be right and hoping nobody notices when we're wrong. And surely part of what resonates with Peter is the fact that we all too sense that we've failed at it, that it's cost us something in the past. Most of us imagine that we've gotten away with it, that maybe there was something that happened long ago, but surely it doesn't seem to have mattered, or people have soon forgotten, or it's not something that gets brought up regularly to other people's attentions. But we know we carry it with us, our own failures, our own shortcomings, our own types of denials of what we want to believe, what we really do believe, but we know lurking somewhere in our own history is our own failure, our own shortcoming to be faithful and true to it. And so it is that Peter resonates with so many of us, that passion that in the last story had him diving off the the boat and rushing to Jesus' side, but yet here senses in Peter's sorrow that he still carries with him the humiliation and the shame of knowing his own failures, his own shortcomings, that he isn't always who he's perceived to be as desperately as he tries to be perceived that way. Jesus turns to him. And says to Peter, do you really love me more than all of these, the disciples, but surely speaking about something much broader? Peter's response is that typical, quick, decisive answer. Yes, Lord, I do love you. Of course, it sounds like Peter. And Peter seems to mean it, by the way. Peter does not, across these stories, strike us the kind of person who's manipulating or conniving or lying It's interesting how similarly his stories at the beginning track with Judas's stories. Judas would betray Jesus. Peter would deny Jesus. But of course, it would be Judas's betrayal of Jesus that would lead him to his own death. No possibility of reconciliation. But Peter seems to have both of these realities alive at the same time. Fear and denial, but yet passionate love for Jesus and a desire to get it right. And here he's quick and seems to be honest You know that I love you. Jesus replies to him, feed my sheep. And then that same conversation repeats itself three times in total. They go back and forth saying basically the exact same thing. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And each time, feed my sheep, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. 
Um, If you've ever heard sermons on this passage, many of you are probably familiar with the way that the language for love in this story shifts around in the Greek. Uh, There's been many, many sermons preached on the differences of the language here. The first time that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He uses a Greek word called agape, love. Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? And Peter responds with a different Greek word, phileo. Um, You can translate those words love and affection. So it would make sense, Jesus, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I have affection for you, would be a fine translation of it. Now, some people have built whole ideas about the way this goes back and forth, love, affection. And then Jesus coming to the third question now shifts his word from agape to phileo. Peter, do you agape? Peter, do you agape? And then in the third question, Peter, do you phileo? And some see in this an indication that Jesus is coming down to Peter's level. That perhaps Peter can't bring himself up to this high bar of the love Jesus is describing. And so in Jesus' mercy, Jesus brings his request down to the level Peter is at. Um, Perhaps that is what's going on here. And if you argued that from a sermon or preached that, I think it's totally legitimate. But the words themselves are not 100% clear on this. Even in the other Gospels, these words are often synonyms in the same way that we might have multiple ways of expressing affection or love or desire. That in the same way, these two Greek words could both be used for love. It would make sense, even as a writer, you're changing up the word from time to time. Perhaps it's nothing more than they're just using synonyms for trying to describe the same thing. But there is something that happens with this third question. Perhaps it's the language, the way Jesus shifts that word to come to Peter's language. But I think there's something more going on with the fact that the question comes three times to Peter than the reality of the word changing itself. Peter seems on the third question, Peter, do you love me? to have sensed something more taking place in these questions than he had with the first two. We read after the third question, Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time, do you love me? That word grieved is the same kind of language that's used of the disciples when they hear of Jesus' death. It's a deep kind of sorrow, a downcast dejection. Something about the third question and the fact that Jesus has now asked it three times causes Peter's answer, his response to change. No longer the quick, decisive language, yes, but now a kind of sorrow. Lord, you know everything, is Peter's response on the third question, and you know that I love you. I think more than anything else happening in this conversation, it is the count. By the third time that Jesus has asked the question, Peter comes to realize that there is something significant in this conversation, not just Jesus repeating himself, but the intentionality of three times asking him the question. Peter must have been struck by the fact that Jesus knew, knew about the denials, knew that there had been three times Peter had denied him. And so now, by his three questions, Peter realized that thing lingering in his past he hoped forgotten was there not drug out in the open by Jesus for all the disciples to hear but in the count of these questions enough for Peter to recognize that he and Jesus both knew if I was going to paraphrase the conversation in the way that I think maybe it sounds right to us and helps us hear it it would be something like this Jesus turns to Peter and says Peter do you love me 
Peter responded, Lord, you know my affections for you. Jesus responded, Peter, do you love me? And Peter again responded, Lord, you know my affections for you. And then Jesus responded, Peter, are you really affectionate for me? And with this, Peter realized Jesus knew of his denials. Two things come out in Peter's final response. The pain, the regret, the sorrow, the realization that all things are known. Jesus, Lord, you know everything. And with it, a genuine and truthful desire. Lord, you know everything. But if you know everything, my own faults and my own failures and my own shortcomings, then surely you know that it is also true that I do love you. You know exactly what I've done. You know exactly how I failed. But you also know that my heart genuinely for all of its shortcomings is to please you. Peter had failed and does love the Lord. He is not who he would like to be, and he is genuinely desiring to be that person that he knows he is not. It is surely one of the most moving and honest and emotion-filled scenes in Scripture. And more than one of you have told me you've been waiting the entire year in the book of John just to get to this story, because it's meant so much to you in the past, and for good reason. It's moving because in Peter's story, we find so much of ourselves our own desperate desires to be honest and faithful and loving to Christ, and that same realization that he knows everything, including all of the ways that we failed his expectations and our own. Like that great phrase from one of the other Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. The things I want to do, I do not do, and the things that I do, I do not want to do, the way Paul put it. Jesus I love you, but you know that that love has sometimes faltered. It is without a doubt one of the most emotionally charged and yet unbelievably merciful moments of Jesus with any of his followers. For after acknowledging, Jesus, you do know all things, Jesus, with the same faithfulness and clarity as each time before, gives that same command, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, you and I both know, but my answer is the same. I've got work for you to do. Feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep. You're still in on it. Many times this passage is referred to as the reinstatement of Peter. That Peter is placed back into the same position he was in even before he had failed. And Jesus does it with the kind of tenderness and mercy The privacy of this conversation with Peter in which he restores him, in which both of them are absolutely clear what they're talking about, though no other may have noticed it. But with this reinstatement of Peter, there is something that is different, something that has changed. Peter's attention is turned towards serving others and not himself. Perhaps this had been at the core of Peter's struggles and challenges and his denials, Peter had a tendency, like so many of us, to look at everything happening around him as how it would affect him. Would he get the praise of having been the first to have the right answer? Would he get dejected and thought less of by being one of these followers who was now being persecuted? Would he receive Jesus' approval here if he was quick 
to state his love, to prove to Jesus, I do love you. But with each of these questions, Jesus shifts Peter's attention away from himself, away from his own declaration of love, to the work that Peter has before him. Feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep. Do not live for the approval of others. Do not fret over what others will think, what they will make of you. Do not live to please them or to seek their approval, their opinions. But serve my flock. Set aside your self-interest and give to my sheep. Remember, all of this is playing out in this scene in which Jesus has just cooked breakfast and fed his disciples. They're sitting there around that campfire with their own bellies full from the breakfast they've just eaten. Jesus has just done exactly what he now asks of Peter. Feed my followers, just as I have done. Take up this work and this task that I've been doing, and now you do the same. How can you hear in that request of Jesus, do what I'm doing, and not recognize that Jesus has done it through death, through suffering, through persecution? The second thing, first being, he turns Peter's attention away from himself. The second is this, Jesus pushes this abstract emotion, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I care about you, I have affection for you, Jesus showing his affection back, all of the emotional language around this conversation. He takes it and then turns it into a simple act of obedience. There is a task, a calling before you. In light of this love that we share for one another, sacrifice yourself and be obedient to what I have given you to do. Go and feed my sheep. Jesus is incredibly merciful and kind and encouraging to Peter. There's no doubt about that. That's absolutely here and you've sensed it and you've felt it. It's a remarkable part of this story that he would reinstate Peter after his failures, that he would care so kindly for Peter. The way the conversation breaks down is so encouraging for Peter. But he also pushes Peter to see that real love is expressed not just by words, but with obedience, with action. Jesus will not allow Peter to be naive about what that obedience will cost him either. If it is just words, if it's just cheap and easy obedience, it doesn't matter. But Peter will inevitably pay for the kind of obedience that Christ is calling him to. Jesus predicts that a day is coming in which Peter will no longer go where he wants and dress himself, but a day is coming where he will be dressed by someone else and led out by somebody else to a place that he does not want to go. John tells us that all of them understood this to be a prophecy about the kind of death that awaited Peter, a kind of persecution and martyrdom that would come. It may sound vague, but the church always understood that what was being predicted was Peter's death because of his witness, because of his obedience. He would die for the sake of following Jesus, die for the sake of feeding and tending and caring for those sheep. Do you notice that this prediction gets Peter wondering about John, who apparently is standing somewhere to the side? This also seems very human, too. We're talking about your death, Peter. And Peter says, what about that guy? What does he get? What's the prediction about his life? Jesus shoots right back and says to him, perhaps it's my will that John lives until I come. What does it matter to you, Peter? And notice he comes back to the command, follow me. Twice it's his command to Peter. Feed my sheep tend my sheep, it finally comes to this simple phrase, follow me. Well, what about that guy? 
Peter, follow me. There's nothing left in this story for Peter other than to follow. And the life that is ahead, and the reality of death and suffering that is ahead, whatever God wills for him or for John or any other, everything in this gospel comes down to this simple phrase, this moment of clarity that Jesus offers to Peter. Follow me. Obey. Take up this work. See how I have done it and follow as you do the same. John concludes his gospel with this radically large statement that the world itself could not contain the books to record all that Jesus had done and taught and was. It's harder to get a more comprehensive and big statement than that. The world itself full of books, full of all of the things that Jesus was. But perhaps this particular book, for all that could be said, for all that could be recorded, this book comes down to a simple phrase. If you were with us in week one a long time ago, the very first words that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John was when he turned and saw two men following him there in that Judean wilderness. And he asked them the question, what do you seek? What are you looking for? They, of course, had taken it to be a very logical, logistical question, and they responded, where are you staying? We want to follow you and ask some questions. But we sensed by the way in which John uses it in this book that it's a bigger question. What is it that your life is after? What do you want? What are you living for? What matters most to you? When you're pressed, when life begins to fall apart, when you face difficulties, what is it you are desiring? And then Jesus, this whole story having played out, comes to a simple phrase again now to conclude his gospel. Follow me. If you love me, follow me. If you believe, follow me. Even for Peter and John, so much about the future was uncertain. They had seen Jesus resurrected, and surely that gave them an unbelievable amount of faith in the possibility of things to come, the prediction of things to come. But all that lay ahead of them was still with questions and uncertainty. One would die for his witness, and another perhaps live into old age. Who would know? All they knew is at the very end, this was Jesus' command to them. Follow me. Obey me in light of what you have received and you now believe. Eugene Peterson, who I often quote, one of my favorite writers, puts it this way. Obedience is the thing. Living an active response to the living God. The most important question we ask of this text is not, what does this mean? But what can I obey? A simple act of obedience will open up our lives to this text far more quickly than any number of Bible studies and dictionaries and concordances can. As we look back on a year together in John's Gospel, I hope there's a lot that you have learned from us working through this book. I know certainly a year of studying it myself has helped me learn all sorts of things. Uh, I've been giving you little Greek word lessons along the way. Hopefully you've memorized maybe one or two of those. If not, no worries. We've uh, at one point talked about maps and historical places, and I've shown you where these events were occurring, from the Judean wilderness to the Sea of Galilee, all the way to Jerusalem. We've learned about first century history. At times I've drug you through the secession of the Herodian dynasty to help you understand who it is in the story or the way in which it shifted to the Roman procreator under Pontius Pilate. You've learned about Second Temple period Judaism. 
I've drug you through all sorts of history of the revival Judean movements that John the Baptist and Jesus himself sprung out of in the wilderness. We've learned about how often Jesus quotes from the Old Testament and looked back at passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We've learned about Jesus's promise, the Holy Spirit to come and the way in which it positioned the church to that growth that would take place around the world. We've learned a lot from John's gospel. But perhaps the question we are intended to end with are these two important questions the gospel pushes on us. We saw one last week in that summary statement. These things have been written so that you might believe and have life in him. Do you believe? And now this one, will you follow? In so many ways, those are the things to take away from this year together in John's gospel. To have learned a lot, great, but to have come back and been able to ask yourself this question. Do I believe and will I follow? Jesus, final words, follow me. If you walk away from this year together in John, just having learned some stuff about the Bible, perhaps it would be helpful if you find yourself on Jeopardy someday. But if it doesn't change the way you live or change the way you believe, then what has been the good of it? If you walk away obeying and trusting where you've previously faltered, you have found something far, far more valuable, a greater faith, a greater courage, a piece of that road by which we follow Christ on into things uncertain yet certain because we follow him. That's what I want to leave you with this morning as you think about what it is we've done together for a year in this book. That same simple request for obedience. Follow me. We aren't sure into what. Certainly we couldn't have predicted all of the things that have played out over this year as we worked through this gospel. And who could be certain about the things to come in the years ahead? We aren't sure where he is leading us as individuals or as a church as a church global. We aren't sure if what we have is only a few days, for some of us a very real possibility, or a few decades. We aren't sure if we will face greater suffering or persecution or moments of revival and the spirits pouring out, if we'll see miracles great, or if we'll sense God's hand in some form of judgment. We aren't sure what others will make of it or think of us, what it will cost us, But we've seen enough from this story to believe. These things have been written, John says, that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in him. We've seen enough of this gospel to believe, to sense that life, to request it. Let it be true and real and in me and me and it. And then our response, like Peter, knowing all the ways that we faltered before and it's been untrue before, we say to him still again, Lord, we do love you. And we hear him say, follow me. There is work for us to do. Our response to John's gospel is that we believe we will follow. That's enough For a year together in one book, as simple as it may seem, it is as comprehensive and as life-changing and as big as any statement that we could make. Jesus, I do believe. Jesus, I will follow. I want to close in prayer this morning and we'll worship together.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time, this year in which we've been able to reflect on who you are, this year in which we've been able to see how others came to believe and so by it, to believe more deeply ourselves. And God, like Peter, we know all of the ways that we have faltered, that we still falter, that we still doubt, that we still struggle, the ways in which we care about opinions, and approval, and respect, the way in which we find our own emotions and our own desires torn within us, believing but knowing we don't believe and wanting to believe more. God, we sense like Peter this morning too, your incredible grace and kindness, that you don't make participation something we earn, but that you come by your grace and mercy and you offer it to us freely. You come to us even in moments like this one as you did with Peter. You speak quietly and privately and personally to us that we are forgiven, that in you we have grace, that your grace and your mercy and your kindness frees us to follow you in ways greater than we could on our own. God, I pray that your spirit would do that work in us, that you would make this gospel message of your death and resurrection alive and real to us that you would move our hearts and where needed by your spirit, convict us of sin, draw our attention to things that keep us from you. And by your spirit, work your gospel's forgiveness and grace into those places that we might say like Peter this morning, you know all things. And Jesus, we do love you. We believe. And so we follow you. We obey you. God, show us that path path by which we show ourselves faithful to you, following you, in these times where that can be so confusing, there's so much conflict and controversy around what it means that, Lord, by your Spirit's testimony to us, there would be a simplicity to what you are asking of us to do next, where it is you're asking us to go, that you would show us the way, light the path before us, and that by faith and by the power of your gospel, we will follow you there, Lord, wherever you lead. We follow you because we know you are good, because we believe that in you is life and resurrection, that in you is our hope for all things to come. God, I think back to that first question we read in this gospel. What are we seeking? This morning I pray that our greatest desire would be to follow you, to seek you, to serve others around us, tend sheep and feed sheep and sacrifice ourselves to love your church and your people in this world as you did. Because you are our example. You are our salvation. You are our strength and our courage and our hope for things to come. And so this morning, what else can we do but worship you? But declare to you that we believe and we will follow. And to do it by glorifying and worshiping you with one another this long line of men and women who believe, this great cloud of witnesses before us, back to Peter and your disciples, and to those who are here with us this morning, and away due to illness, that God, we collectively come together and say, we believe, and we follow, and we worship. It is in your name we pray.